Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. At booksandnachos.com, you can find over 100 reviews, from fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. There's also links to our forums, our Facebook and Twitter pages, and information about our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. At booksandnachos.com, we're here to find you something great to read. Welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media podcast about all things in print. It's your long-lost host, Stuart. I'm returning to the show after extended vacation. I couldn't refuse an opportunity to talk about one of the biggest-selling books of all time, and that is Mario Puzo's 1969 crime epic, The Godfather. Now, you hear that title tends to bring up images. You think of maybe Marlon Brando in a tomato patch or James Caan getting mowed down in a toll booth. Angry Al Pacino proclaiming, you broke my heart, Fredo, as he hugs his devious brother over New Year's Eve. For me, it's a sound. I always hear that lonely trumpet playing the theme song Waltz from the movie. But we should all keep in mind that The Godfather was a sensation long before it was an Oscar-winning cinematic event. Before Francis Ford Coppola shot a single frame of film, that book had spent two years in the New York Times bestseller list, a fourth of that time in the number one slot. Gold Level donors over at Sister Podcast Now Playing have already heard me voice my opinion about those Godfather movies with co-hosts Arnie and Jacob. It's a trilogy that's part of a larger retrospective of actor Al Pacino's greatest gangster roles. It suddenly occurred to me, now that that donation drive is wrapping up this week, I really need to get back to Books and Nachos because I've wanted to talk about the way that that movie differs from the original source novel. We've discussed at length the career of Al Pacino, how that little-known Sicilian stage actor was really launched by The Godfather. It's even more true for the author Mario Puzo who, by his own admission, was kind of failing when he first contemplated the idea about writing on the inner workings of the mafia. The year was 1965, and Puzo's second book, The Fortunate Pilgrim, had just been published to little fanfare and dismal sales. The writer was crushed. It had taken him 10 years to finish this personal story of an Italian-American matriarch who, like Puzo's own mother, had struggled to raise an immigrant family in Depression-era New York City. The author knew his story had literary merit, but he had to face the cold hard truth that, you know, maybe it was a little too gentle for American tastes. If Puzo wants a bestseller, he needs to have something with a lot more sex, violence, and intrigue in it. And Puzo wanted to have a bestseller. He had spent the first half of his life trying to emulate literary greats like Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky. You know, make the kind of books that impress academics and resist pop culture trends. Naturally, those books also have trouble paying the bills, and Puzo, well, he eked out a living writing short stories and book reviews for newspapers and magazines, and then he supplemented that income with loans from banks and family members. By this point, he was 45 years old, $20,000 in debt, and needing to provide for a wife and five children in the very expensive city of New York. It was time to sell out or give up on this novelist career plan. Puzo decided to give it one more go, and we got The Godfather out of it. And the only reason Mario Puzo wrote The Godfather next 
was because his publisher liked his pitch and was willing to pay him $5,000 for it. And the only reason Puzo stuck with it was because the publisher agreed to pay $1,200 more for a completed manuscript. It would take Puzo three years to complete The Godfather. It was not a personal story. It was not something he was burning to tell. He may have very well have lost interest if he just could get the money any other way. No one in his family was connected. Many people, when they read The Godfather, believe this is an insider look. But Puzo wasn't mafia. His friends and family weren't in that circle. He did have a gambling habit. And he was indebted to a few bookies. But otherwise... This story didn't mean anything to him personally, that money was the only motive. And why would a book about mob life mean big sales in the 1960s? Prior to the election of President Kennedy, most folks had never even heard the word mafia. You called Al Capone and the bad guys on that Untouchables TV show gangsters, not mafioso. But that changed when JFK appointed his brother Robert to be attorney general. And they formed a high-profile task force dedicated to uprooting organized crime in America. Mafia was suddenly a headline on all the front pages of the newspaper. And then in October 1963, it was all over television as well. Because real-life mobster Joseph Valachi appeared before a congressional committee on a live telecast to spill secrets about the Cosa Nostra which is a term that insiders like to refer to, but it basically means the same thing. It means mafia. Next thing you know, JFK, RFK, they're assassinated, and citizens are wondering, hey, was it the mafia that pulled that trigger? The time was right in 1969 for someone to tear back the curtain and expose these crime bosses who seemingly wield more power than our own government from the shadows. But was Mario Puzo the best guy for that job? As I've already stated, Puzo didn't have any first-hand knowledge of mob activity. Yes, he was Sicilian, and the term mafia specifically meant crime families that traced their roots all the way back to Sicily and southern Italy, but I don't know that that was cachet enough to pin an expose. Look, I want to be clear. Puzo worked for it. He lived off that book advance for three years doing extensive research. And sometimes that was personal interviews with people in the know. A guy who knew a guy who knew a guy that was in the mafia or had a tale to tell. Many times he would have to go to the library to brush up on history. But when he reached a dead end and facts couldn't be verified, Puzo did what most fiction writers do. He made it up. I think it's really important to stress that The Godfather is not investigative journalism, or even a fully accurate depiction of how the Cosa Nostra conducts business. Yeah, some characters, some situations on the page do mirror real-life events and real-world figures, but do not mistake a novel for truth. This is fiction. And truth is kind of a big theme these days. We want authenticity, right? We don't want cultural appropriation, someone telling someone else's story. We don't like speculation. We want to know truth. So what does this 50-year-old novel have to offer today's reader about the mafia? Now, it's understandable that the book would cause a sensation in 1969. The public was hungry for any information about a huge societal problem. But the fortunes have changed for Sicilian families operating in the U.S. now. There's been a lot of, I'll use the word, progress. There's been arrests, executions, fraud heists, police raids. There's been a lot that's happened that's destabilized and dismantled the mafia. 
And we know this in part because so many people within the organization have written autobiographies and tell-alls saying as much. So you might rightfully ask, aren't we better off reading those historical accounts instead of Puzo's fantasy? Now that we have people that were really in the know, shouldn't we listen to them? My verdict is simple. The Godfather is a good book in any era. It's still worth your time because its strength lies not just in the criminal experience, but in the immigrant experience. Puzo may not have known any mob bosses, but he had a strong Sicilian mother who did provide him daily lessons in old world philosophies and values. And I think the central conflict of the Godfather novel is the clash between those family values installed by parental figures that nations impose upon its citizens. It's a very universal theme. Whether you're Sicilian or not, I imagine everyone at some point has felt like the powers that be don't respect them, don't understand their way of life. Maybe you felt persecuted by your religious beliefs, your ethnicity, your cultural identity. Something foundational about what makes you, you, is out of step with community law and norms. And so that's what this is a story about, a family that is out of step with the government and the people that are in power. The Godfather and his children have the same problems that we do in 1945 New York City. The fact that they're mobbed just means that Puzo can throw in a little bit of that sex and violence he needs to sell more books. So let's go ahead and crack open The Godfather. It's a 446-page epic. Let's learn a little bit more about Sicilian-American culture and this title character. Vito Andalini began life in the 19th century on the island of Sicily in a little town called Corleone. He will grow up to be the head of a crime family. You can call that by whatever descriptor you like. You could call him Don, Capo, Boss. It all means the same thing. Now, the history of southern Italy tells us that the people there have really suffered under corrupt and unjust governments for centuries. From the time of the Inquisition to recent fascism of Mussolini, it's always been kind of bad for them. And so I'm going to quote Puzo on page 327. Faced with the savagery of this absolute power, the suffering Sicilian people learned that society was their enemy. And so when they sought redress for their wrongs, they went to the rebel underground, the mafia. The word mafia originally meant place of refuge. Justice had never been forthcoming from the authorities, and so the people had always gone to the Robin Hood Mafia and their capo mafioso for help in every emergency. He was their social worker, their district captain ready with a basket of food and a job, their protector. End quote. That evocation, I think, of Robin Hood really helps me look at the Mafia Dons in a more sympathetic way. You, you say Mafia, and I tend to think it's 1920s and some guy with a Tommy gun mowing down the cops as he tries to move his liquor. This is really more like a rebel rouser, you know, someone that's going to provide a needed buffer between the average citizen and the evil institutions that take away their land, their cattle, their prosperity. Now, I was just saying that Puzo made stuff up to fill in his story. One of those inventions is using the term godfather as a synonym for mob boss. Nobody called the heads of mafia families godfather before the publication of this book. 
That was a Puzo invention. He thought that men that sat in that chair would look at themselves as father figures. They give advice. They make sure that their communities have what they need in material things. And that's kind of what a godfather does in the Catholic tradition. They're not biologically related to you, but they're going to spiritually look after you and make sure that you're okay. And so this was the book that introduced that term. It is used now. That's the funny thing. Puzo made it up, but now it's a real thing. Power of fiction. Now, the path for our godfather, main character Vito Andalini, is interesting to me because it's not going to happen in Sicily. It's going to happen in America, which is a place that's embracing of all cultures, that everyone is equal here, and so you wouldn't need a buffer between the citizens and the government because it's democracy. We run ourselves. I find it ironic that Vito actually wasn't born into the life of mafia. Quite the contrary. His father died because he defied a local mob boss in the town of Corleone. They killed him, and then that capo decided, I'm going to kill little 10-year-old Vito as well because this kid could grow up to get revenge. And you're eventually going to knock on my door with a gun. I might as well just get rid of you too. Now, fortunately, Vito's mother was able to arrange for her son to be smuggled out of Corleone and shipped to America, this is kind of good news, bad news. Good news, uh, the assassins, they won't find you. You are so far away that you are not going to be killed by the Corleone mafia. The bad news is you are all alone in the new country. You have no one to depend on in 20th century New York City. But Vito does find his way. He will change his name. He is rebranded at Ellis Island as Vito Corleone. This wasn't done just to hide his identity. Sure, it probably helps that if anyone were looking for him, he's not going by Andalini anymore. But it's also just a way of keeping a connection to his long-lost birthplace. He wants to be Sicilian. He does not want to be American. And again, I think that's the motifs and themes of this story, is to watch that push and pull in identity. For a while, Vito doesn't need to turn to a life of crime to make his way. He does make friends. He gets a job at a grocery store. He gets a wife. He starts a family of his own. And things are going great. And then he finds out that things in Hell's Kitchen aren't so different from Corleone. Because a flashy mobster named Fanucci has Vito fired from the grocery store. He has a relative that needs a job. And so, wielding his power, he says, You go, my nephew comes in. And Vito probably wouldn't have minded that so much if Fanucci was nice about it. You know, if he had offered to get him another job or something for his troubles, then maybe it wouldn't have been so insulting. But Fanucci is not gracious, and that's what doesn't sit right with Vito. He doesn't grant favors. He wets his beak, and he takes what's yours. And so Vito realizes the mistake his own father made was that he didn't shoot first. And so he's not going to make that mistake. He assassinates Fenucci and takes over his criminal operations in Hell's Kitchen, New York. But with great power comes great responsibility. Suddenly every Italian in the neighborhood is banging on the door, badgering Vito with their problems. My landlord kicked me out. I need a job. My child is sick. Vito becomes their godfather. And so he embraces that. He decides that logic is better than threats. He hated the way Fenucci treated him. He's not going to make the same mistakes as Fenucci. He is going to pull strings and fix all these problems for people. And this gains the reputation of a man of reasonableness. He is suddenly seen as some guy that the community wants to support. And that's different than selfish Fenucci. And sometimes that's different than the U.S. government, which has started to send men away to fight in World War I. 
And so here's really where Puzo gets to underline the differences between old world Sicilian identity and the larger framework of America. Every time Uncle Sam is going to fail its citizens, Godfather Vito Corleone is going to be there to swoop in, pick up the pieces, and gain more influence with the American people. Starting in World War I, time when imported European goods were scarce. Italians in New York, they couldn't get their hands on olive oil. They couldn't get their hands on a good Genoa salami. So Vito partners with his old buddies at the grocery store and they open the Genco Pura Olive Oil Company, which is an import business that prides itself on being able to get Italian-Americans anything they want from the motherland, even during the wartime rations. Next, U.S. government decides to pass the Volstead Act and alcohol is suddenly prohibited in America. How can the average citizen get his hands on a nice glass of Chianti? Well, they just pop down to the nearest speakeasy. There are secret clubs where you can get your beer and liquor thanks to Vito Corleone. His Genco Pura olive oil company delivery trucks are going to be the ones smuggling the moonshine. And so, again, Godfather came through. When they tell you no, he'll tell you yes. Next up, the stock market crashes. 1929, we're in a Great Depression. Masses of people can't find work. They lose their homes. They don't have enough to eat. How do you solve this problem? Hey, go talk to Vito Corleone. You don't even have to be Italian. Godfather accepts all requests from all people. He'll give you that job. You'll be able to earn your income. But there is a catch. In all likelihood, you will probably have to do something very illegal to repay that favor. And that could mean shaking down a rival business, maybe killing someone in cold blood, going to jail. What's it going to be for you? Would you rather live in Hooverville? Who are you going to love? Uncle Sam or Arvito? A constant push and pull for everyone that lives in New York City. This is the thing. When the U.S. government can come through with its social programs, when things work properly, folks are going to go with Uncle Sam. FDR's New Deal is probably better than going to jail. So when times are tough, mob business is booming and the number of mobsters in New York City grows. But when good times are here again, as they are at the end of World War II, where we start this novel story, you suddenly have too many mafia syndicates vying for control of too few neighborhoods. And the reality is that 66-year-old godfather Vito Corleone knows that with the prosperity of Eisenhower 1950s coming, there's going to be another gang war. People are going to have to wipe each other out. It's just cyclical that way. And so he's looking at his family to see who can step up and take the reins from him now that he's entering old age. So we look at all the children. We begin at a wedding of his youngest child, his only daughter, Constanzia Corleone, or Connie. You get the whiff very quickly that this is a very chauvinistic culture, the Sicilian society. And it's 1945. Women just had a hard time, in general, being respected in a workplace. Consequently, there are no godmothers. There is no way that Connie is going to be allowed to step up and take the reins for the entire family. A woman's place to the Sicilian culture here is either in the kitchen or the bedroom. Now, she is getting married to a man who is half Sicilian, but that doesn't count. Bloodline determines everything in these matters. you got to be full-blooded Sicilian to inherit the throne. So Connie and her man are completely out. Who does that leave? Well, Vito's oldest son, Santino, who everyone calls Sonny, thinks he's earned his place at the head of the table because his father put him in charge of wiping out all the other mafia families. Back during the last 
gang war of 1933, there were so many of them, he completely annihilated the smallest, the weakest families. But that's also why Vito is hesitant to make him the future. Sonny is a guy who was great in violent confrontations. He thinned the horde. There are now only five major crime families in New York. He's a big reason why there's not 12, 15, 20. But he is too much of a hothead to make the logical decisions a godfather has to make. He knows everything about killing and nothing about peace and charity. And so you can't rule with brute force. That's where Finucci failed. Godfather knows this. Sonny would just be another Finucci. Now, there is one charitable thing that Sonny did. I, I feel like we need to praise this much. He did bring home a street kid, an Irish-German street kid named Tom Hagen, one day after school. And Vito decides to raise Tom like a son. Even though he's an orphan, he's going to treat him like one of his own with the idea he could grow up and help the Corleone family. But... Again, it's a Sicilian thing. This guy is Irish-German. You, you cannot rule. But you can be consigliere, which is a Sicilian term meaning counselor. And so the plan is that Tom's going to be sent off to law school, and then he can come back and provide good legal advice for whoever the next godfather is going to be. Vito's current consigliere is dying. He goes all the way back to the Hell's Kitchen grocery store days. He's old too. He has a long-term illness, and just hours after Connie's wedding, he dies in a hospital. So let's look at the middle son, Frederico, better known as Fredo. Well, Fredo's a mama's boy. He doesn't have Sonny's good looks. He certainly doesn't have his confidence. He's still a bachelor at 30 and just doesn't seem to have any prospects for the future, either in career, women, anything. Kind of going nowhere. People like him. He's good to his mom. He helps her out when he can, but he's definitely not a crime lord. To quote Puzo, Fredo lacks personal magnetism. Quote, that animal force so necessary for a leader of men. So, he's going to get passed over. Vito wants his youngest son, Michael, to be the successor, even though there was a time that the Godfather worried about his masculinity. As I've already stated, chauvinistic culture. You gotta be macho if you want respect. And Puzo describes Michael as not having, quote, the heavy, cupid-shaped face of the other children. And his jet black hair was straight rather than curly. His skin was a clear olive brown that would have been called beautiful in a girl. He was handsome in a delicate way, end quote. And beyond that, Michael is just a defiant child. He wants nothing to do with the family business. He commits the greatest sin imaginable. He chooses the U.S. government over the mafia. He enlists in the Marine. He goes off and he fights in World War II. And now that it's over, yeah, he's coming home. But on his arm is a non-Italian girlfriend, this white Anglo-Saxon Protestant named Kay Adams. Just another symbolic act of defiance. Michael is announcing that he will continue to live his life beyond the Sicilian ways. Most people that know the Godfather movie understand it as the story of a prodigal son coming home. And that Michael will become the next Godfather, reintegrate with the family fold. It all happens the same way here in the book, pretty much. There's a Turk who wants to flood New York City with heroin. He asks Vito for permission. Vito says no. So the Turk puts a hit on Vito and he barely survives it. Michael rallies to his father's hospital bed, picks up a gun, kills the Turk, as well as a corrupt Irish police officer, has to spend a few years over in Sicily hiding out because that actually kicks off the next gang war that Godfather knew was coming. 
And then eventually Michael does come home, Vito dies, and he becomes the godfather. Quite literally, he becomes the godfather to Connie's son. He goes to a church, agrees to be the kid's spiritual advisor, and then he's also going to leave the family in all of its illicit business, starting with executing Connie's husband. He was one of the many traitors within the family that was responsible for the hit that killed his brother, Sonny. So, yeah, you know this story already. We already have a good telling of it. If you turn on that movie, that might be enough for you. But film fans are going to be surprised that Vito has another heir. Vying with as much attention given as Michael for control here is Johnny Fontaine, Vito Corleone's actual godson. Now, I mentioned that Puzo got a $5,000 advance from his publisher because they really liked his book pitch. Well, here's what it was. Johnny Fontaine is a very successful Italian-American singer who has fallen on hard times, and he needs to call up his mafia-connected godfather in order to keep his career afloat. Essentially, the Frank Sinatra story, or at least that's what Hollywood gossip would have us believe. This Johnny Fontaine character briefly appears in the movie. He is played by a real-life singer named Al Martino. He is in a good bit of the beginning where Coppola has wisely retained one of the best scenes. I think it's one of the most loved scenes in the movie as well that this singer has come to his godfather, asked him to pull strings in Hollywood because a big shot movie producer won't give him a part in a movie. And so you have Marlon Brando playing the godfather, sending Robert Duvall, who's playing Tom, over to Hollywood to negotiate. And when that doesn't work, well, the producer wakes up to find a horse head in his bed. It was his prize-winning racing horse stud. And it's a great scene. It's very memorable, shocking. No one who sees the movie will forget it. But that's kind of where Johnny Fontaine's story ends. He was just a way of showing how far Vito Corleone's reach can be. He can get you all the way in L.A. if he needs to. And so that's all that it really serves in the movie. But Johnny Fontaine on the page is there for about a fourth of the book. Puzo makes that singer just as important as Michael Corleone. I mean, that is the biggest difference between what's on the page and what's on the screen is that we have this whole other subplot going on amid all the familiar plot elements. Now, I personally think Johnny Fontaine is sort of a crutch for Puzo. Keep in mind, this is a guy that's trying to write a book to be popular. So let's center it around a popular singer who, yeah, may have had mob connections and isn't that shocking. We live in the TMZ age. I get it. We all like celebrity gossip. That was true then, now, and probably forever. So there's something here for that audience. Even if you can't follow all the multitude of characters, all this Italian slang might be confusing for you. You're still going to keep reading because there's all these salacious things that happen whenever we cut back to Los Angeles. New York is where the violence happens, but Hollywood is where we get the sex, sex, sex. And so the question to ask, and I'm not the person to answer it, how close is Johnny Fontaine's story to Frank Sinatra's career? When we meet Johnny at the start of this book, he's 36 years old, he's losing his voice. His second marriage to a beautiful Hollywood actress is falling apart. He's trying to bring young starlets home. Well, his songs aren't on the radio anymore. They're not impressed by him. They don't want to go to bed with him. If he can't sing... He's going to be a nobody. And so the only solution is to go from being a singer to being an actor. That's why he needs this part in this movie so badly. It's going to be a big hit. It's going to make him successful. 
that did happen for Sinatra. It is true. He is on the record as having some years where he really had some throat trouble and couldn't sing as well. It's also true he starred in a World War II melodrama called From Here to Eternity and even won an Oscar for that in 1954. It's true that Sinatra is Sicilian. Is there anything else there? Well, Puzo doesn't want to get sued. Frank Sinatra is still a big star in 1969 when this comes out. He's actually quite pissed at the way that he's portrayed in this, but they didn't use his name, so you can't sue him for libel. And that's where we leave it there. But the book, I think, draws very clear parallels between the way Michael Corleone defied his family, chose to go fight in World War II, and the way that Johnny defied his family, or at least his godfather, and chose Hollywood. Early on, Fontaine lets his godfather make all his career decisions, even who he's with. His first wife was a very dutiful Italian woman who becomes the mother of his two kids, and they have this wedding at Vito's house, much like Connie gets at the start of this book. He has a similar wedding. That all changes. When Johnny goes out west, he gets a big head. He doesn't think he needs Godfather anymore because his records are selling. And so he tosses his wife away and his two children away. And he marries this beautiful starlet who ends up being very cruel and doesn't want to be with him anymore because he can't get it up, according to her. So we have a lot of bedroom talk in this novel. And Johnny sees this as karma. You know, he kind of believes superstitiously, if I had just listened to my godfather, maybe my voice would still be here. Maybe I would be in a happy marriage. Maybe everything would be going okay. The doctors do not know why I am losing my voice, so this must be God striking back, or in some karmic way, godfather striking back. And so it is a big deal for Johnny to return and plead his case, tail between his legs at the start of this book, And Vito slaps him around for a little bit, you know, but he's not going to hold a grudge because he likes to have people in his thrall. He wants Johnny back under his control. So he's going to do him this Hollywood favor. He is going to send his personal hitman, Luca Brazzi, very fun character actor in the movie. We find out definitively he is the one that goes and cuts off that horse head, puts it in the bed with a Hollywood producer and makes that producer give the godson his shot at stardom. And he does more than that, too. He has influence on unions, all kinds of workers' unions. Vito can call up unions that work on film sets, lighters, gaffers, electricians, all of that stuff, and he can pull the strings that get those Oscar voters to go for Fontaine. So, yes, this character is going to get his part in the movie, and he is going to win that statue. Now, I've never seen From Here to Eternity. Maybe Sinatra's great in it. I have seen The Detective. I have seen Ocean's Eleven, the original 1960 movie. We've covered it over at Now Playing. Sinatra ain't a great actor. It is not hard for me to imagine that this might be how he wound up holding an Oscar. But be that as it may, not confirmed. Johnny now has to pay it back. He's got to clean up his act. He's got to make his godfather proud. And so that starts by leaving his trampy second wife and going back to his first wife, being a good father, presenting the image of a happy Italian family man, clean cut. And he needs to sing again. How's he going to do that if he doesn't have a voice anymore? When he's at that wedding in the beginning, Johnny reconnects with his old singing partner, Nino Valenti. They came up in the business together, but like everything else, when Johnny went out west, he kicked Nino to the curb. 
And so now he's going to make amends. He extends an invitation for Nino to move out west with him and sing on all his future records. And this is very mutually beneficial. It works. Nino gets to become a big star and live it up. And Fontaine can still put out records in his name and sound good because the sound engineer has turned up Nino's mic and turned down his raspy voice. This stuff, you know, maybe it's not bad. It feels like a very different story when Puzo goes off on these tangents, particularly because they're laced with so much lurid sex. You know, that's just not how I think about The Godfather as being lustful. But here, whenever we're in L.A., boy, oh boy, we just have the time of our lives listening to Johnny and Nino test the Hollywood casting couch. You watch the movie, you think about Shakespeare. You read this book, you think about Jacqueline Suzanne's Valley of the Dolls. And unlike Fontaine and Nino, these two voices just don't sound good together. It just doesn't work to have this Hollywood story butting up against the one that we know. And it gets weirder. Puzo decides to bring in Lucy Mancini into Fontaine's life. Now, Lucy, also in the movie, briefly, was the girlfriend of Sonny. She was a bridesmaid at Connie's wedding and took a moment to slip off and have sex with Sonny while no one was looking. Puzo devotes an extraordinary amount of time to Lucy's quest to find a big penis. I'm not kidding. Sonny is hung like a horse. You know, maybe a horse that got its head cut off. But it's implied that he is very well endowed and he can satisfy her and she becomes obsessed with him. And it's even kind of implied that maybe that's why he's so brash and impatient and violent. It's certainly why he's cocky. It's because he's so large. And Sonny's wife doesn't really mind because she considers sex with him to be torture. She's a good Italian wife. She can't divorce him. She's going to keep up the image. But she doesn't want to have sex with this giant monstrosity. So she more or less condones the extramarital affair that Sonny and Lucy have. Again, there are just large segments, passages that are full-fledged erotica. Listen to Puzo Heavy Breathe here. I'm just going to read you a little bit from page 28. Lucy let her right hand drop from his neck and reach down to guide him. Her hand closed around an enormous, blood-gorged pole of muscle. It pulsated in her hand like an animal, and almost weeping with grateful ecstasy, she pointed it into her own wet, turgid flesh. This goes on for several paragraphs at several points in the novel. Am I a prude for not wanting this in my Godfather saga? Is the problem that Coppola put so little sex in the movie that it feels like Puzo is putting too much, that he's making a mistake by going softcore? Keep in mind, 1969 was a very sexually liberated time in American culture, and people were demanding to discuss sex in all kinds of forums. It's probably not out of place that it was in a major bestseller or all the major bestsellers of that time. But to me, it does feel like... Well, maybe an insecure writer throwing sex in the mix whenever he fears that things are getting too talky or confusing. I'd also argue The Godfather isn't very sexy after Sonny gets killed and Lucy has to go be a cocktail waitress in Vegas. And it's there that she meets a disgraced abortion doctor who vows to shrink her oversized vagina with surgery. Readers can practically pick up a scalpel and perform the procedure themselves. There is so much detail about it in this novel. And what does that have to do with the mob? I mean, I get that abortion was illegal in 1969. Many women had to turn to the criminal underworld to handle unwanted pregnancy. 
but that's not what's happening here. Kay will have Michael's abortion, but this character is not serving that storyline. It is here for this very lurid, very exploitive subplot about a woman that just can't get enough sex. The only way I can justify it is that it eventually winds up that Johnny Fontaine comes to visit Lucy in the hospital after she has the surgery. And that same abortion doctor that worked on her can hear in Fontaine's voice, makes a diagnosis that proves accurate. You have a growth on your lymph nodes and I can cut it out and you'll sing normal again. And so we get a happy ending here for Johnny Fontaine that he thought he was washed up as a singer. We thought he was over-reliant on Nino to be the singer. You know, after cutting up Lucy, this doctor cuts up Johnny and he's his old self again. And this is good because Nino is no longer very reliable. Hollywood has gotten to him the excess of drinking, smoking, screwing, gambling, all of that leads to a very dramatic diabetic coma. I'm not kidding. He just kind of falls over into a diabetic coma. His abortion doctor, he does everything. He saves him from that as well and lectures these showbiz types about their bad American values. Look, I know Puzo is trying to be like Dostoevsky and craft this large-scale epic overloaded with subplots and characters like all Russian literature is. I applaud that he's still trying to be an artist, slip a little bit of art in there. He doesn't want to be a hack, but there are limits. I do not recall the brothers Karamazov having extended consideration to the way doctors can tighten vaginal walls. I really do think that Puzo's editor failed him by allowing him to include all these theoretically sexy scenes that distract, really, from the meat of the family drama. Coppola fixed it. I will argue that Godfather and Godfather Part 2 are better films than Godfather is as a novel. Coppola works as the editor that Puzo didn't have. But even with all this literal and figurative looseness, I still think Puzo has done something remarkable on the page with the way he told an immigrant story and diagrammed the way business works in America. I do think that there are a lot of interesting details and illuminating subtext you're not going to find in the movies. And Puzo's pro style is different than Coppola's writing style. I think that you will see characters you thought you knew in a new, clear light when you read them and re-experience them on the page. By Endorsement is to consume both. Start with the book, read it, see where your mind goes and where it takes you. And then if you haven't seen it already, then go watch Coppola. He's going to reduce that 10-course banquet into a very savory cinematic sauce. They go great together. I like the book. I like the movie. And so with that, I've had my say. That's what I have to say about Godfather the novel. And originally, I admit, I was going to be more ambitious. I was like, I'm going to read all of them. There's all these Godfather books, Godfather Returns, Godfather Revenge, Family Corleone. I'm going to read them all. It'll be great. I haven't even gotten through the Dune series yet. I still owe people three more podcasts of Frank Herbert. I can't handle any more workload. I'm doing all I can. That said, I'm going to do one more Puzo. I have to. I mean, I when I looked at his life and what he did after The Godfather, he wrote a lot about the mafia. Not a surprise with a hit as big as The Godfather. You go back to the well again and again. He wrote The Last Dawn, Omerta, The Family. I'm not going to do any of those. They might be fun reads. Someone let me know in the forums. But I am going to do The Sicilian. This was Puzo's 1984 novel that is him revisiting the character of Michael and Vito Corleone. It's not a prequel. It's not a sequel. It's a midquel. 
When Michael has to go hole up in Sicily, he meets a new mob figure, and this is his story. He is that Sicilian of the title. And so, I'll do that book for next week. I hope you can join me. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed me prattling on about The Godfather and want to hear even more Corleone in your life, please do consider heading over to nowplayingpodcast.com and donating at the gold level for the Al Pacino Gangster series. We've got lengthy reviews of all three Godfather movies, plus Scarface, Dick Tracy, Carlito's Way, Donnie Brasco. Your financial support is what allows Vidgaza Media and podcasters like myself to keep churning out content that we do on a weekly basis. So if you can't afford it and you can make that donation, thank you very much. I hope you enjoy those shows. And even if you can't, I hope you join me next week when we talk about The Sicilian. In the meantime, keep reading. I'll talk with you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. You can also find many more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. Books and Nachos is a crowdsourced podcast with no sponsors or ads. You can support our show by pledging to our Podbean campaign at booksandnachos.com slash support. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, provided by podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2018, all rights reserved. And no part of the show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated.